I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. And Ashley, what should they expect to hear if they continue listening? And what should they definitely not complain to us about if they continue listening? If you are interested in hearing the meet between the pages of a celebrity memoir, baby, we are here with it. But on the side of that fresh slab of hamburger, you are going to get a little bit of broccoli, a little bit of potato, and you've got to finish your whole meal, okay? This episode is a meal, and if you don't want the whole thing, it is an insult to the chef. Eat elsewhere if that's not what you want. Oh, the meat and the broccoli, that's our opinions. And we are hitting the road as well. Huge news for our UK Wormies. If you live in London or Dublin or within a reasonable distance of, we are finally coming to you. We teased it on the Patreon a couple of weeks ago. We finally have official AOK to let you know the dates. April 7th, April 8th. Is that true? Yes. April 7th and 8th. 7th in Dublin, 8th in London. We are so excited to skip across that salty little pond that some people call the ocean and worm our way into your British and Irish little hearts. Tickets are on sale right now, and I hate to do this to you guys, but they are very small venues because we had to prove our worth before we could get bigger venues. So if you want to come, please do not wait to buy tickets. They will sell out, I'd imagine, immediately, and we want to meet everybody. So this is just like an FYI, an update. Please get them as soon as you can so that it's all okay for you. And then, of course, everybody else, Dallas, Austin, Portland, Seattle, and New York City. Things are selling out quickly. Claire... Before you get ready to travel, where are you here? Where are you now? If you were writing a memoir, what would you title this last week's chapter? Hard zard. <laughs> I'm zarding hard. For those of you who are not the 12 people that used to listen to Who's With Tabs as well, you may not know that I used to be obsessed with finding pictures of lizards and being like, I'm grumpy just like him. <laughs> I went through a real grumpy phase once that lasted nine months, I think. <laughs> I, was gonna, I thought you were going to say years. <laughs> Your grumpy zard phase was... Not short. <laughs> Long and strong. Yeah, I don't know. I just woke up on the wrong side of the bed today and everything is the worst thing in the world. I'm having just an epic proportions ugliest girl in the world attack. My eyeballs are like buttholes and I just want to punch them in like a cartoon character. I feel like they're red and slimy and disgusting like Timmy Turner, but like a bad, you know what I mean? I feel like they're cartoonishly gross. I feel like they're oozing mucus they're not they're literally not but that's how I feel they look <laughs> that's crying <laughs> but no I just feel like I look so ugly everything in my apartment is making me want to die I think I'm moving next month and so now I've let my brain accept that my apartment isn't actually the greatest place in the world and just waking up every day I'm just mad about everything I can't stand the sound of my radiator that's how I felt last month I know. And it's just like once I feel like you let down your guard of it could be better. You're like, oh, my God, this is so bad. And I'm just grumpy about everything. And I feel like I'm being really lazy about keeping it tidy because I'm like, whatever, I'll just move. I'll just get out of here. <laughs> I don't need to sweep. I'll just leave. But I actually can't leave right now. So now I'm just like living in a dirty apartment that makes me grumpy. I hate everything I own and I want to buy all new stuff. But I also like want to save my money for the move. And I just feel like my eyes are buttholes and my heart is a zard. And then today I showed up to the studio and I was like, I've never looked uglier. I tried on 100 t-shirts. Everything looked so bad on me. I was like, even my pants, my favorite pair of jeans, they look awful on me. And Ashley was like, I've never seen those pants in my life. Are they new? And I was like, no, they're not new. They're my favorite pair of pants and they look terrible. <laughs> and then we did come to the conclusion and realized that I actually am wearing Max jeans. And that's why the fit seems so weird. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's tough out there. It's too cold. I'm just grumpy. I don't want to minimize your feelings, but the winter blues are blue i like don't feel good they got me they got me good today ashley if you were a celebrity and you were to write a memoir what would you have called last week's chapter 
I would call it in search of vibe regulation. Beautiful. I am having a hard time because, listen, it is January. The blues are bluesing. Everyone is sad. And people have been coming to me with problems. I feel like I'm overcompensating with unrealistic optimism that doesn't feel like me at all. (laughs) You told us your life was good with that new apartment. And now we're all here to leech it out of you. And it doesn't feel like me to be like, everything's perfect and fine. But I also don't want to dig anyone lower in the dumps. I'm feeling negative five. A lot of people are between negative five and 12, I would say. Yes. And I don't know how to bring people up to even a negative three without responding with a plus 10, which is just straight malarkey. (laughs) It's not myself. It's not anybody. I'm not a liar. I don't want to sound like a deranged cheerleader. I want to sound like a proper shoulder to lean on. I mean, you walked in here with a list of problems (laughs) that I can only tackle one at a time. My friend reached out to me the other day. She has to wear a dress to an event and she's really freaking out about how ugly it is. And it is ugly (laughs) and I just I don't know how to like not be obviously lying but also be helpful can I say you've really helped me today when I came in and I was like my sandwich today sucked the noise next door sucks my apartment sucks everything I own sucks and my butthole eyes suck (laughs) and my favorite pair of jeans suck and you were like actually those are not your favorite pair of jeans those are a pair of jeans that were not made for you at all. That did help. It took me from a negative 10 to a negative eight for sure. Beautiful. The way that you tackled that problem head on and fixed it. I feel great about that. I really appreciate that. I just think overall to expect anyone to move out of the negatives in the midst of January is an unthinkable task. No one could want that from anybody. But to not make things worse, that's all I want. (laughs) You're doing a great job and I really appreciate you're putting the whole team on your back. My team, I mean humanity. (laughs) I just spit all over the mic. That sucks. Everything sucks. (laughs) You know what sucks? This week's bunk. (laughs) It's true. It's true. This week Call Them Lala by Lala Kent. That's literally not what it calls. You know what sucks? Your ability to read script. (laughs) Give them. I'm sorry I went to public school and I don't know cursive. This isn't cursive. It's sloppy regular. Yeah, it's loop-de-loop. It's making my eyes do a loop-de-loop and I don't like that. Give Them Lala by Lala Kent. It makes me want to Lala, but not in the Ashley Simpson song sense, in the plug your ears and go la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la sense. I actually didn't hate this book. I'm lying. No, you're not lying. You like weirdly support it. It's very roles reversed from last week. I know. Here's the thing is I don't think that this is the worst Bravo book we've ever read. I don't think it's the worst book in general we've ever read. I think she's a lunatic, but I think she's a lunatic with moments of clarity that she used this book to document. And I think it overall is not a harmful piece of work to put out there. And I guess that's how I'm judging books now is will it help people or will it ruin society? It won't ruin society because nobody bought it, which is why it's funny that they printed upon it a sticker that says national bestseller. It's not a sticker. It's a circle within the design. But they printed this. <laughs> I know. I mean? They printed it to look like it's a sticker. I love that about them. And actually, ironically, one of the plot points of one of the seasons of Vanderpump Rules was her not making the bestseller list, which I think was made worse for her because Stassi Schroeder, who was a former castmate of hers, did make the bestseller list twice. However, it did make it with a dagger of shame, which is supposed to mean that it was bought in bulk. So suspicious activity there. So Lala was competing with an impossible standard. 
at point of release, she did have a rich fiance who could have supported her by buying this book suspiciously in bulk. Yeah, but I think he is the kind of abusive man who would have sent his assistant and been like, you need to buy eight of these copies at 22 Barnes & Noble's locations across California (laughs) over and over and over and over. And they just couldn't drive fast enough within that first week of sales, huh? I'm just going to jump ahead. Her former fiance and father of her baby is Randall Emmett. And we will be talking about the Hollywood Reporter expose on him on the Patreon this week. He is a very horrible and interesting fraudster. We live for a fraudster. So Lala Kent was born Lauren Burningham, a girl from Salt Lake City, Utah. And she does the thing that I can't stand in these reality TV books where she separates her identities in this way where she's like, there's Lauren and there's Lala. But Lauren encompasses basically everything she likes about herself and Lala is everything she hates about herself, except sometimes likes about herself. And she's like, I am Lauren, but sometimes Lala comes out and who am I to control that? I do think it's very reasonable to have a persona that you use to absorb the vitriol of reality television or public life, but to blame all of your worst behaviors on that person is bullshit. And so in this intro, after explaining that there is a Lauren and a Lala, she also says, It's a reminder for me to never play a role and always be the realest version of me because the alternative leads to disaster. And that's a line that I think we'll come back to throughout this book when she keeps on talking about the way on Vanderpump Rules she's acting. When she's doing this, she's playing a role. This is why I can't stand it is because no one is ever actually creating a divide, but then they throughout their books will like throw everything around as I was two people, but I was always the realest version of me. But this version of me was a different version of me. And I was always true to myself. And you're like, what are you talking about? Who are you? So here I give you Lala, the real Lala, all of her, the good, the bad, and the ridiculous. There are things in these pages that even those closest to me do not know. I know the haters will continue to hate whatever I'd say or do, but that's okay. I'm opening up the contents of my heart anyway. I have to say, I don't think she said anything in here that even her nearest and dearest don't know. Yeah, I don't think she's said much in here that hasn't already been on TV. Or even that we don't find out by way of her mom and her friends are all there or like a fight she had with Randall. Yeah. Chapter one, the H word. Have you ever been slut shamed? Ever been told your sexuality is offensive by someone who has no right to comment on it? I will say her character on Vanderpump Rules was very much like the girl who's going to come fuck your boyfriend. I think she used to yell at girls and say, I'm going to fuck your boyfriend. Yeah, she was like famous for taking off her top in front of everyone's boyfriend. She was famous for like flirting with guys who had girlfriends. And then I think she hooked up with Ariana Maddox while her boyfriend was in the car. And then she almost married a man who she met while he was with his ex-wife. So I do think it's funny. She's like, nobody has any right to say what I do with my sexuality. And I'm like, sometimes you do make it immediately people's problems, though. Yeah, I guess I think that's one thing that bothers me so much about her obsessive I was one character. I was doing this as like a form of self-preservation, et cetera. I think it's okay, like I said, to have a front that you project in order to keep yourself safe from public scrutiny. But I don't think it's okay when that front is harming real people's lives. Yeah, and I don't care either way. I get that she's doing it for good TV. I wasn't married to Randall Emmett. I don't care if you hook up with him. But she is very much like, I wasn't doing anything that could hurt anybody. So what did they care? And I'm like, well, what if you talk to the other people who might have been the ones hurt? So she talks about how she has been judged and slut shamed her whole life. And she's like, listen, I was a hoe. She has been through a hoe phase and she's very proud of it. That's what she calls the time she was single and kind of sleeping around. In case you're wondering, a hoe phase goes a little something like this. You're at a club. You're feeling good. You see someone who gives you those kinds of feels. You make eye contact. You start vibing and suddenly you feel all happy down there. Yeah. She calls sex bumping pee-pees. Ew. (laughs) 
which is one of those things where I don't know. It really stresses me out when someone is like, I'm the most sexually liberated person there is. Anyway, one time a man was down there with my vajuj. And you're like, what are you talking about? Say the real words. You're an adult. She was like out there having a lot of sex. And she recommends having sex with a friend or a friend of a friend because I don't condone slipping off with a stranger and having sex with them. Be smart, be safe, and feel free to never deny yourself a good lay. I don't know. That's not bad advice. I feel like people are going to be like, you're not allowed to say that. But I don't think it's bad advice to not go home with a complete stranger just because it could be unsafe. I've always felt safer knowing that there's some way you could contact them back. Right. I think that if you are with someone at a club and that person was brought by a friend of yours, that does just feel one degree better than a person you just started talking to at the bar. She then goes on to explain that her hoe phase was the bridge to the happy home that she now shares with her soulmate, Randall, whose last name I cannot wait to share. In many ways, hoeing really is the path to enlightenment. However, girls projected their closeted hoe hatred onto her. She was called a ratchet whore, a gold digging whore, a home wrecking whore. I always say, if you're going to call me a name, at least be accurate. Call me a raging bitch whose mouthy ass may or may not need several good throat punches and an ass kicking, as someone suggested on a Reddit thread once. Okay. So here she explains that when she was going through this phase, she was sleeping around a lot. It was a lot of it was caught on camera by the show Vanderpump Rules. And she's like, because of that, a lot of people hated me. And in order for me to survive the amount of hate I was receiving publicly, I had to develop this defense mechanism where I thought of myself as two people. There was the real sensitive soft me, Lauren from Utah. And then there was the hard me who acted sassy and didn't give a shit and slept around. And that was Lala. She also says, had I been given the choice, I never would have chosen to go through this time on camera. I do feel that agreeing to be on a reality TV show is a choice. I understand that it's a choice that when you're trying to make it in Hollywood, you're not given a lot of opportunities. So people say yes to things that they wouldn't have said yes to had they had several options. But to say... I was sleeping around on camera and people were mean to me and I never would have been in that phase. Of course, everyone has a different version of themselves that they would be on reality TV if they could go back and be their most composed scripted self. That's just not the point of reality TV. So this whole first chapter almost acts as like a contents page for the rest of the book. She gives you a real quick rundown of everything that's about to happen. She's like, I moved to LA. I wanted to be an actor. It didn't work out. So I moved back home and then I went back and then I'll tell you all about that later. And now I'm with the love of my life and this is how it happened. So this first chapter, I mean, if you really wanted to not read this book, but you wanted to hear her writing style or her ghostwriter's writing style, you could go to a bookstore, read this first chapter and get the gist of everything. So she grew up in Utah, Salt Lake City. She was not Mormon. Her dad had left the church and met her mom. She loves her parents. They actually seem quite supportive. Then she moves to LA for six months when she's like 19 years old. Then she moves back to Utah. She starts dating a football player named Carter. And then she's flying back and forth between LA and Utah pretty consistently because she's dating Carter, who lives in Utah. And when she's 23, she moves back to LA permanently. And that's when she ends up on Vanderpump. So this chapter explains a lot of the time that she was with Carter moving back and forth. And this relationship was horrible. I don't even know that Carter would have called it a relationship, to be honest. It's one of those things where hearing her side of it, I'm like, does he know he was your boyfriend? I don't think so. She talks about being flown out by him pretty regularly. Not even pretty regularly. I guess every few months she would come out. When she was there, he didn't spend very much time with her. She says he would fly her out and then be like, okay, I have plans with my boys, so you have to find something else to do. And so she would go to her friend's house because some of her friends from Salt Lake City had moved out to Los Angeles a few years prior. He would fly her out every couple months to hang out with him. And she thought that he was flying her out and that was some romantic gesture. But then she says, each time I visited, it seemed that Carter behaved with less and less respect towards me. Sometimes she would fly out there. And after the football game where they weren't hanging out, he was playing football. 
he'd be like, well, I have to go celebrate with my boys. And so he would just go out without her and she wasn't allowed to come. And then she said specifically one time she started to have an intuition that something was off. Here is the night where finally something in her gut was like, I don't think this is right. It was on this visit that I felt the power of intuition for the first time. She is in her 20s. Also, I'm sorry, but if you're only seeing somebody every three months and when you go to visit them, they don't want to hang out with you. How did you not have any intuition that something was up? And then we hear more about her relationship later where he just wouldn't contact her for days on end and you had no sense that something was wrong in your relationship. Anyway, here's the straw that broke the camel's back once because they eventually got back together. A straw that briefly broke the camel's back, but the back healed rickety. She has been flown out to hang out with him. In the middle of the day, he wakes up and is like, well, I have to study. So I'm going to the library. And she's like, okay. So she goes to hang out with a friend. All day, she's calling him, asking when he's going to pick her up. He never answers. Finally, at 1230, he's like, okay, I'll come get you now. It takes him three hours to come get her. He doesn't get her till 3.30 a.m. He says, oh, sorry, I got pulled over. Then he says that he got a flat tire. And she thinks that she sounds like empowered. She's talking to her friend, pacing back and forth. She's so mad. She goes, when he gets here, I'm going to ask to see the ticket. (laughs) And it's like, ooh, sleuth. (laughs) And then she goes, I bet he won't be able to show it to me because it's not real. And it's like, yeah, good for you. Anyway, she gets to his house. And his bed is messy. She's like, I made the bed before I left. All of her stuff has been thrown and hidden in his closet. And then she's like, what the fuck? Obviously, there was a girl here. And he goes, oh, no, no, no. One of my friends brought a girl and just used my room to have sex. And so the next morning, she wakes up and goes, you know what? When he ditches me today, I'm going to the airport and leaving and not even saying goodbye. I don't think he cared, man. They still hooked up later. When he ditches me today, that's when I'll make my escape. But it's just so funny because then later she's like, yeah, I have really good intuition and I never feel anything off with Randall. He's a great guy. He never makes my intuition bells go off. And I'm like, of course, you don't have intuition bells. There was no intuition. You walked into his room and there was a giant poster on the wall that says someone else was here. And you said, was someone else here? And he said, no. And he said, well, what about that sign? And he said, oh, my boys put that sign there as a prank. I feel like he's screaming in her face what's happening and there is not an intuition bell in sight. So then four years later in 2013, she moves back to LA and she decides she's gonna be like a cold hearted slut. So she's just fucking around and she finds out that the more she fucks around and doesn't care about men, the more they want her. And then she goes through all the men she hooked up with. It's like a security guard, some guy named Andre. She also only has one one night stand, which I'm not saying there's value in having lots of one night stands, but I think it's so interesting to be like, I was the biggest hoe in town, hoeing around as hard as I can. And then to specify and be like, but there was only one one night stand. At one point, she has this guy staying with her in her apartment for a while and she promises him not to have sex with him and another guy on the same night. And then he's spending a night with his sister so she invites a different guy over and then when he comes back in the morning he tries to cuddle her and get into it and she goes, oh, we can't get into it because my hookup from last night is hiding in my roommate's room and he freaks out and they never speak again. And then she hooks up with some older guy named Cooper and she's like, he didn't like that I was stoned all the time but I'd never been happier. I loved being high all the time and I'm like, yeah, that sounds good. And when they break up, he brings her a goodbye goodie bag because she never had toilet paper in her house. And so he brings her a bunch of edibles and toilet paper and a bag that says, fuck you. So she calls him and makes him come back and gives him back the toilet paper and the bag that says, fuck you, but keeps all the edibles. And I'm like, bitch, keep the toilet paper. It sounds like you needed toilet paper. Why don't you have toilet paper in your house? Also, my Cooper, you sound like a fucking loser. Where did you find a gift bag that said fuck you on it? Also, she says he was 35. That's so embarrassing to be 35 years old and hooking up with a 22-year-old that you expect to be on fewer drugs. I also feel like she's like, I got the last word in by calling him and having him come back and hand back the gift. And I'm like, I don't know, man. I think you would have had the last word by saying nothing. 
Because to be that old and that pathetic and that petty, it's like just a loser existence. So we forgot to say that the reason she was having her hope phase when she moved back to L.A., she moved back to L.A. and thought she was going to be with Carter. But when she gets there and finally spends time with him, she goes to his room and there is a used condom on his nightstand. And she's like, you knew I was coming over and you couldn't even clean up a little bit. And so then after this 35-year-old man experience, she ends up getting back with Carter for a little bit. He has been hitting her up for weeks and weeks and weeks. She hasn't been responding because she's strong Lala now. She finally invites him over and she goes into her bathroom and flushes a condom down the toilet. And she's like, this is what we do with used condoms and she's like he was so infatuated with the way that I'd grown so strong and passionate and intense that we were a perfect relationship and it's like except that you guys still didn't really talk after that and now you lived in the same city also are you supposed to flush condoms on the toilet it doesn't sound like it'd be good for the pipes but I'm not a pipe expert so I pipe down and then we jump right into chapter two reality tv saved my soul I think one of the things that made me like her a little bit more is that she is so grateful for the opportunities that reality TV offered her. There are a few times that she does kind of talk shit on, you know, the manipulation and having to expose certain parts of her life on reality TV, which I think is natural to build up a little bit of resentment. But there are so many people who are like, this is not what I asked for. I never wanted this. And it's like, then why did you do it? She is thankful for the reality TV opportunities she's had. And it makes it a little bit more likable. She's not acting like someone who had no control over who they are. I'm kind of annoyed by the way this book works just because for no other selfish reasons than to do this podcast. I read this book this morning. This book was almost nothing and somehow I can't remember anything that was in it. And now looking at it, I'm very confused by the outline. It's like she had that intro and I don't know what it was for. She had chapter one and chapter two, which was years 19 through 25. And then she goes back to the beginning and I just don't understand. It's like a couple of chapters from ages 19 to 25. And then on chapter three, she goes back I'm like, look, I get that a lot of people like to do that to get you in, but you can't spread it out across a couple chapters. It's weird. So she's talking about how she got her job and she's like, believe it or not, I actually had gone to Sir at the age of 18 with her friends when she went to live in LA back then the first time. And she claimed she was in Las Vegas when Stassi and Jax met for the first time. How well did you know these people? I don't think she was there with them. I think she was like in the room coincidentally. They ran in the same circles. I don't think they ran in the same circles. They ran in circles that had one adjacent piece. Fun fact, I was present when Jackson Stassi met for the first time in Las Vegas two years before the show even was picked up by Bravo. Yeah, okay, you know what it is? She had a friend who was a waiter at Sir with Jax, I guess. Okay. But I don't think they were friends. I think she like happened to be out one night. She tried to be a waiter there for a while. She got fired pretty quick. She didn't understand the gist of it. And then she says years later, she was back in L.A. Her friend worked at Sir. She went to get drunk there one day and was walking around chatting up the room when Lisa Vanderpump told me they were looking for a hostess. And with that hostess gig came the possibility of appearing on Vanderpump Rules. Was I interested? I was tipsy and it took a second before her words sank in. So at this point, she had moved back to L.A. She was a fit model, which is the models who clothing brands hire who are just kind of the mannequins. They fit them. They fit the clothes to a body. And she was one of those models. She got paid $40 an hour, which is pretty decent. And it kept her days fairly free for auditions. But she went to auditions and couldn't get those jobs because she did not have enough Instagram followers to book commercials. This happened at one. I think she did not have enough Instagram followers to book one commercial. Yeah. And she's so funny because she's at a Target commercial audition. And she's like, since when do you need social media followers to be an actor? And I was like, since when do you need to act in a Target commercial? <laughs> <laughs> but so she gets this opportunity from Lisa Vanderpump. And she's like, this could be the thing that gets me more social media followers so I could finally follow my dreams of being an actress. 
When Lisa made the offer, my first thought was run, Lauren, run. Then I thought about it. After being in L.A. for nearly two years, all I'd booked was a Buick commercial and a handful of indie films. A handful of indie films? Show me them. What does she mean, a handful of indie films? And at the same time, that guy Carter that she had been sort of dating on and off was picked up by the NFL. I was obsessing over it because he was making moves like he'd always planned, whereas I was still going nowhere fast. Fuck it. I thought I'm doing it. So this is something I want to not call bullshit on, but raise a bullshit flag on. Is that how this show works? You can just be in the right place at the right time and Lisa Vanderpump sees you from across the room and says, do you want to be on the show? Or do you think that there was her knowing that there was an opportunity to be on a show and she kind of edged her way in at this opportunity? I honestly don't know. I just think we read a lot of people who are like, and I don't know, someone walked up to me and said, do you want to be a star? And I said, well, I've always thought about being a star. And next thing you know, I was on one of the most popular shows on Bravo. The reason I don't think it's so crazy is because she was in West Hollywood acting insane. And I think it's fair to assume that everyone in West Hollywood wanted to be a star. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think yes and no. In that it's not like some random coincidence that this girl who had this secret dream of becoming an actress was randomly discovered. It's like, yeah, she wanted to be an actress. So she went to L.A. where everyone wants to be an actress. And so Lisa Vanderpump was looking for crazies. And Right. But I wonder if there was people talking about, oh, that show Vanderpump Rules. They're always looking for new people to shake up a season. So if you're going to act psychotic somewhere act psychotic there because maybe you'll get on the show yeah her roommate was also a bartender there I mean I don't think there's anywhere she wouldn't have acted psychotic okay I don't know I just thought I'd raise the question I guess I truly feel like she was also going to auditions literally do you think she went there specifically to get famous I think every time she left the door she was hoping to get famous and this was one more place she left the door to go yes I mean a currently running tv show is not casted by Lisa Vanderpump walking up to you saying you should maybe be on my show there's people who get brought in there's like potential people that I feel like the producers are looking at maybe they do interviews I think that there is like a longer period of maybe you'll end up on this show than a quick conversation with Lisa Vanderpump oh yeah I'm sure she had to go in and interview with like producers and stuff but I guess I don't doubt that Lisa Vanderpump goes there's a psychopath so she agrees to be on the show all of the other girls on the show can't stand the bitch hi I'm Lala I said they were very aloof giving off on top of the food chain energy And it only went downhill from there. It would be nearly two years before I got anything close to a genuine smile out of those girls, Katie Maloney especially. I mean, these days, just the thought of her makes my heart explode with love. But we had the rockiest start. We both had a tongue that will slice you like a samurai sword. Uh, This, again, is a really interesting way to view yourself. To say, oh, we have these whip-smart tongues. You were mean to each other. That's not the smartest thing to do. I mean, she's not particularly clever. She'll call you a fat hoe. (laughs) You know, I don't know that she's unearthing unknowns and securities and people speaking them like I've never been spoken. I would call her words less a samurai sword and more a troll's club. Yeah, exactly. If you are a Vanderpump Rules fan, you will remember that she joins the show and then immediately she leaves for a high profile haute couture modeling gig in Italy. And everyone on the show called bullshit. And this began her reputation as being a slut because very quickly they were able to figure out This 5'6", regular-looking girl is not a high-fashion model. Obviously, everybody knew that she was a yacht girl. She literally was going to hang out on a yacht. And she claimed that actually she was just invited because she had a good personality. I read this book. She doesn't. She has actually a horrible personality. She's like a violent drunk. Yeah. She is somebody who is a destructive, cruel drunk. And quite a mean person in general. Well, she's always drunk. So it doesn't even matter how she is in general because she's always drunk, especially on a yacht and vacation. So I don't really think it's the personality. But even when she's not drunk because she didn't drink in high school and she was quite mean to people. Yeah, she's just a mean person. And then later in the book, she's like, that was Lala. And you're like, no, that's Lauren too. 
Anyway, so she's mad because I got off on a bad foot because everyone was so mean to her about her fake modeling trip. I ended up canceling the whole thing and spent my time off in Utah, crying on my mom's shoulder, gathering up the strength to go back and face the people at work. I will say this one I don't have a lot of sympathy for. Like, yes, you walked into the lion's den and everyone was mean to you right away, but you walked in to a very complicated social situation and said, first things first, I'm going to take a week off and lie. It didn't win you over any favors. She also says this. Katie's boyfriend, Tom Schwartz, a model and a bartender at Sir, kept his distance. He was not a bartender. In one episode, they tried to give him a bartending job because he needed money and he'd like never worked before. He had a panic attack. He couldn't handle bartending for 15 minutes. He was not a bartender. Anyway, so she has a hard time because first things first, she lies and everyone's mad at her. Then she ends up flirting with James Kennedy and Jax. Jax had lied about having a girlfriend and she couldn't believe it. Everyone was so mad at her for flirting with a guy with a girlfriend. And she's like, well, I didn't know he had a girlfriend. Well, specifically, he tells her that he doesn't. Right. But she says, I never experienced this level of duplicity among men. It's just not how we roll in Utah. Back home, if someone has a girlfriend, they're usually honest about it and they wouldn't hit on you. We are three pages into chapter two. All of chapter one was about how often she got cheated on. I just, you have experienced this level of duplicity amongst men, but your bells of intuition were cracked like Notre Dame. Like the Liberty Bell? What's a cracked bell? Yeah, Liberty Bell. Excellent. (laughs) She also says, sweet little Kentucky muffin, America's sweetheart, Brittany, never wanted to be famous. She would have been perfectly content living in Kentucky, getting married, and having a family. You do not marry the biggest sociopath on reality television if you don't want to be on reality television. One of my hottest takes is that Brittany Cartwright is actually the most evil person on Vanderpump Rules because she pretends that she's not, and yet she has put up with some of the most disgusting, vile, demeaning actions from her cheating, lying husband in order to stay on that show. And I really do believe that. I really do believe that the fact that she moved in with him after meeting him in Vegas in three months. If you're happy in Kentucky, you don't move to LA and get cheated on nonstop. You don't show up and get fake tits day one if you're just like happy being a mom on a farm. God, the thing about this book is that it's so boring to recount because it's like, and then what happened was, so then one night she was flirting with Jax on TV. She called Carter because she was horny and ate his butthole and told James Kennedy and believe it or not, James Kennedy told everybody because everyone on the show is there to make good television. I wouldn't trust somebody on the cast with sexual exploits. So then she's mad that everyone's talking about it. He's mad at her for revealing it. And she's hurt that he's hurt because she says after the extra intimate night we had, I couldn't believe he was mad at me. And it's like, I don't know, man. I don't think he wanted his business aired out. He doesn't even know you. I think Carter is an asshole. I don't think he's a nice guy, but I'm on his side that I also would not want what we did sexually privately to be on TV. Yeah. I think that's a fair boundary. The meaner they were to me, the wilder I became. I didn't care about anything or anyone or what they thought about me anymore. It just, it's hard to sympathize because I do think this is a very stressful and difficult situation. And so one of the pieces of credit I will give her later is when she is having a reconciliation with the cast, she's like, I realized they were in the pressure cooker of reality television too. And that is something that we've asked a lot of memoirists to acknowledge and they don't. So I give her credit for acknowledging that. But her behavior was so bad. And also I get that she was like, if they want a slut, I'll give them a slut. But She also has to admit that she was on TV and she was making good TV. Yeah. She's definitely someone who knows how to play it up for the camera. Yeah. I mean, she interrupts the speeches at Katie and Tom's engagement party and tells them to hurry it up. And she's like, I don't know. They thought I was such a bitch. And it's like, that's a really bitchy thing to do. Even though their relationship is fake, you still shouldn't interrupt the charade of engagement speeches. Their relationship was not fake. It was just bad. (laughs) (laughs) There's a difference. I guess what I meant was not fake for television. I meant 
fake in their heart, fake in the sense that there was no love there. It was fake in the way people in the Midwest get married because they think that that's just what you're supposed to do. It was an engagement party at gunpoint, but nevertheless, (laughs) toasts were to be had. She talks about going on Watch What Happens Live and being the first guest in history to be named the jackhole of the week because her and James Kennedy were so drunk that they couldn't stop saying swear words on live television. And she's like, Andy Cohen was so mad at me. And it's like, yeah, you ruined his show. Yeah, she didn't understand that if you swear on live TV, they have to bleep the whole thing out. And so that most of the show seemed muted and he kept specifically asking her to stop and then she would just curse some more. I was mortified, embarrassed, devastated. I couldn't believe I'd acted such a fool. I'd come from an amazing family and I had an incredible upbringing. Why had I allowed myself to act this way? I don't know why. She has no reflection on it. That's the reflection right there is her being like, was this wrong? So the next day. (laughs) I will say that she's just like a 23-year-old. She's just like a dumb party girl who gets drunk. Who among us? But she also says this. She leaves Watch What Happens Live and meets a fan. His mom took a picture of us, then showed me for approval. I was wearing my emerald green dress, spaghetti straps, and my eyes were bloodshot from the alcohol I'd been guzzling since morning. Even worse, I had a shiny, greasy face. You could tell that girl is living her best life. I don't know if she's kidding or not. I don't either. I don't know that being shiny, greasy, and bloodshot from guzzling alcohol is living your best life. It's really hard to tell if she's being sarcastic because I don't think she has a sense of humor. She doesn't know the difference between funny and outrageous. And she's like, at home, my friends think it's so funny when I interrupt church to pull down my pants and take a shit. (laughs) She has this little joke she does, we'll get to it later, where her whole family is super Mormon. And she would go to her grandma's dinner where the whole Mormon side would meet. And she'd be like, I'm going to go get fucked soon. And she was like 17 years old. And she was like, it was so funny watching them all be upset. And I'm like, is that funny? As a non-Mormon, as someone who didn't come from a particularly conservative family, I still wouldn't speak to my grandmother that way. I still don't think as a minor or even as an adult, even as an adult, as someone soon to be married, I cannot imagine this time next year, I'm going to sit my grandma down and be like, guess how I got fucked last night, grandma. (laughs) Like, I just don't think that's something I'll ever say to my grandma. Even hearing it now really stresses me out. I know you and Mac are waiting till your wedding night, but don't tell me about it then. <laughs> Listen, we're waiting until we specifically want children. <laughs> so after Watch What Happens Live, she feels humiliated. And it's her first time really getting online and seeing everybody hate her so much. The whole world was talking about how awful Lala Kent and James Kennedy were. And Andy was saying how disappointed he was in us. I was mortified, embarrassed, devastated. And her dad was just like, hey, it's okay. Just apologize. And so she sends them each emails and everybody really appreciates an email. And I do think that goes to show people are happy with a little apology. People are happy with an apology. She says, I knew I could do better. So I tried really hard to be more Lauren, the version of myself that is sweet, polite and in control. I really can't stand that she can't figure out because I think it's a sham that there's a Lauren and a Lala. So the way she doesn't even know what it is, is annoying to read. Yeah, because she likes to compare it to Beyonce having Sasha Fierce. And I'm like, no, that's not it. Sasha Fierce is an onstage character. Beyonce doesn't scream at Jay-Z and be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry that was Sasha Fierce. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry that I actually started a fight in my real life marriage. That wasn't me though. She has no concept. She'll be like, on the show, I'm Lala. And when I'm in a fight with my boyfriend, I'm Lala. And when I'm mad at my friends, I'm Lala. But when I want people to stop being so mean to me, I'm Lauren. (laughs) (laughs) She also has one of my favorite tropes was being like you never guess but I'm actually quite sensitive I'm like I would guess that nobody screams this way at people unless they are deeply defensive and sensitive nobody has ever been like the worst person I've ever seen and then been like but at home nothing hurts me you're the most hurt that's why you're acting insane anyway when the episode airs and I was talking about Carter getting his butthole eaten would you believe that Carter gets really mad and stops speaking to her forever 
Thank God someone had to call that thing quit. Somebody in that relationship had to have some <laughs> self-respect. I'm glad Carter set boundaries. So now we take things back in time to Utah, back to Lauren Burningham. I, Lauren Burningham, will not stop until I'm in the movies. So from a young age, she wanted to be a movie star. And she said she wants to be an actress. She's obsessed with art and film and acting. Who are her favorite actresses? Favorite actresses are Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen. But later, when she's watching TV and watching E! News and seeing celebrities being interviewed, she goes, oh my God, I don't want to just be an actress. I want to be a role model. And it's like, you don't want to be an actress or a role model. You want to be a famous person. And she's like, of course, I always wanted to be actor. When I was little, I was dramatic. As a kid, I was the jokester and a class clown who craved a grand emotional moment above all else. Yeah, you just like attention, which is fine. It's fine. It's just not acting. It's a different thing. If you were a character actor who made a very steady and solid living from acting but never got interviewed for anything, that's not the life you want. You want to be the person who's been in one thing and gets interviewed a lot. Yeah. So she starts taking classes. She tries to become a child actor. It doesn't go great, but she's trying. She also is like, my favorite TV shows with actors in them was E! News and 106 and Park. I'm like, that's not really a scripted actor's job. <laughs> like, what are you talking? You just want to be famous and you literally don't know the difference. Later, she's like, I was able to put my acting skills to work on Vanderpump Rules when I was acting like I wasn't dating Randall Emmett, even though everyone knew I was dating Randall Emmett. But then she goes, I couldn't do it well because I'm a bad liar. She's like, I'm a good actor, but a bad liar. I'm confused. How about instead of considering it lying, why don't you act like something else is the truth? <laughs> so she's always talking about her family. Her parents have been together since they were 19. They're very in love. They're very happy. Something she really wants you to know is that she loves her parents and they had a great marriage and she doesn't have any daddy issues and she was raised well. And I'm saying that with a tone. It sounds like I'm being sarcastic, but I'm not. No, I think that her parents were really kind and supportive people. She loves her dad so much. Her mom seems like a really kind and good mom. She really just doesn't shit on either of her parents. She only has beautiful things to say about them and their marriage and who they are and how they parented her. She was raised very wealthy. Her dad was a real estate developer and he built like $10, $15 million homes in Utah and Deer Valley and Salt Lake City. And they were raised with everything they could ever want. She had a very nice upbringing. They also really instilled upon her the idea that your credit is your name and they were obsessed with her having good credit. And I'm like, listen, amen to them because yeah, <laughs> if you've been following along, you know about my credit crises. My entire life, I saw my mom go to work, even though she didn't need to because my dad's business was doing so well. My mom taught me to save, to take care of my possessions, to work hard and to never depend on a man, never share a bank account and keep everything separate in case one day he leaves or God forbid he finds himself in hot water with the big dick of the law and they try to snatch all your possessions. Can I say, I think the big dick of the law can figure out that you're who's married. Who's whose? Yeah. I don't think it works that way. I don't think you could be like, buddy, that's not my account. That's my wife's account. I, from reading this, thought that there was going to be a dramatic breakup between her parents because I find the keep your bank account separate forever conversation to be a little bit stressful. I feel like the point of being married is that you assume you're going to stay married. I understand having separate accounts for financial reasons like I know that the IRS is a tricky little bitch but having separate accounts assuming he'll leave to me means you're assuming he'll leave yeah but I still think like hope for the best plan for the worst I guess that's why you got to prenup. up I guess I don't think that that's bad advice it just happened to not be the advice that she's foreshadowing here the way that she's like my mom was smart she always had her own bank account just in case something bad happened do you think her mom was saying, because like, Lala, I know you're going to need this advice. I'm fine, but you're going to yeah, need maybe. a separate bank account. And she didn't even know it yet. She's like, I guess my mom was saying, have your own bank account. But really, it was because Lala needed one. No spoilers here, but I don't know if you guys have heard about 2008. 
there was a huge housing financial crisis and it turned out building 10 to 15 million dollar homes was not actually lucrative forever. And so her dad lost everything and they had a lot of financial problems. But that's why it's so funny to be like in this situation, having a separate bank account was so helpful because I'm like, did she not share that money with the dad who was still her husband and broke? Were they all eating lobster and being like, this came from my account? Also throughout her life, her dad was not in great health. He had a major scare when she was eight years old. His heart valve had gone out. The part of his body that controls how much blood gets to your heart. His heart was being flooded. My dad had been minutes away from dying. And these surgeons, who will forever be my angels, performed emergency open heart surgery and saved my dad's life. So he then gets put on blood thinners. So she talks about the day her dad went to the hospital and her dad wasn't there when she woke up. They go to school and her mom never came to pick them up. So they walk home from school alone and then her aunt picks them up and brings them and tries to distract them. And she's like, they couldn't distract me. I could figure out that something was going on. I wasn't the type of kid that you could stick in front of some Barbies and I'd be good. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I think most kids, even if you were two, if your parents did not pick you up from school, you would pick up on it. I think as early as the age of three, if your parent who picks you up from school every single day just didn't ever show up, you would be like, what's happened? Lauren's just really sensitive and not like other kids. And then because her dad's on these blood thinners, there are just constant issues. They can't regulate it. And so he's constantly at risk for bleeding out. He would bite his tongue by accident and just almost bleed out. Yeah, he cut his tongue on a ginger snap cookie and almost bled to death. I will say that's traumatizing. If I thought a cookie could kill my dad by accident, I would also be in high alert. But she says the rest of her childhood, she was so anxious because she always thought every day could be the last day with her dad. But it also taught her to appreciate all the time they had. So moving forward to middle school, she was bullied a lot, she says. Her first experience with online bullying was when she got an AOL Instant Messenger chat that said, I'm going to kill you one day. And it was because she had blamed a fart on this other kid, Philip. And so they went in and they're like, how dare he try and kill her over a fart? And I was like, listen, he shouldn't have said that. But I do think it was an empty threat. Meanwhile, publicly blaming a fart on some loser could ruin his life. It's also bullying. I will say he bullied her back too hard. But she bullied him also. And I don't think it's warranted. But I think that she throughout this book is like, I was bullied so miserably and I don't know what I ever did to deserve it. Meanwhile, I was going to modeling stuff and going to LA with my mom and getting acrylics and highlights and all the other bitches were just jealous of me. I don't think it's warranted that they were mean to you. But you were not just like walking through the halls, not bothering a soul, just a meek little girl. You were being mean to people also. In fourth grade, all of her friends were in a different class and she was in the mean teacher's class. And when her mom went to ask if she could be switched to the other teacher's class, they were told, Mr. Kushner doesn't want you in his class because he says that you refer to him as a fat R word. Is that true, Lauren? And she's like, I never said that. But apparently one of my friends had told Mr. Kushner that lie. And it turns out they weren't my friends at all. And I'm like, I really don't think that that was a lie, to be honest. I'm sure you did say that. I really don't think she was that nice of a person. It doesn't seem like she was... I mean, we've watched her on TV for years now. She has a pretty short fuse. She's quite mean to people. She's like, maybe it's because I listen to different music than them. They all listen to Britney Spears. I was into Tupac and the Ghetto Boys. And so she very quickly develops a way to handle bullies. I reprogrammed my brain. I went toes with them and my mouth was my weapon. That is how I fought. I would never put my hands on anyone, but I developed a very sharp, quick tongue because that was the only way I could stick up for myself. My self-defense mechanism was I'm going to slaughter you with my words to the point where you're never going to want to talk to me again. And it worked. Soon enough, people started leaving me alone. It got to the point where my mom would drop me off at school. And instead of saying, have a great day, honey, she'd say, be nice, Lauren. I'd shrug and say, I'll try. It reminds me of that 30 Rock episode where Liz Lemon finds out that she actually wasn't bullied. She was the meanest kid in school. Yeah, exactly. And that's how I really feel. I think that Lauren has it all mixed up. 
So she joins the drama club and there she finds people who really understand her. And because they're all dorks, they all look to her as kind of someone who can keep the meaner kids away. And so when kids in the drama club are being bullied, they would have Lauren stand up for them and it would keep people away because she was so good at being mean back. And she loves that she's the little protector. And then she has this little statement. Bullies don't often know that they're bullying you. And sometimes the people who are bullied turn into bullies. And so this is where she's like, when I watch myself on TV, I see that sometimes I was out of line, but there's no reflection backwards to be like, and maybe in high school, I was a bitch too. But she feels pretty cool, like a moral vigilante. And so she also seems to have always had close friends. She always had a best friend. She also has these two friends named Maddie and Olivia. Their moms were best friends with Lala's mom, and they all had their kids at the same time on purpose. They all had daughters the same age. And these are girls that she's like, they're my ride or dies for life. So I'm like, well, so you've always had ride or dies for life. Maddie also wanted to move out to L.A. to become a star. And she actually did. She moved out to L.A. in high school and ended up being in a few movies. I looked up her IMDb. Good for Maddie. But she hasn't been in anything since 2015. Damn. So she really wants to be a model or an actress. And one day she's in the Salt Lake City Mall. And a man named Harry Lipton, owner of a modeling agency, goes up to them and says, you've been discovered. He then convinces them that they need they need to get $2,000 headshots taken. So they say, okay. They drive down to San Diego and get $2,000 headshots taken. That was a bust. Another thing that she does is she spends a lot of time in L.A. because every time that she's being bullied, her mom will be like, let's just take a couple days off school and go to L.A. And so she'll go to L.A. And at one point, she got discovered by an agent who it turns out worked at one of the big three agencies in L.A. And he's like, come to my office. We'll do a meeting. So they want to have a meeting the following week. But of course, her mom and her friend's mom have to go home. So they just leave her in L.A. with a family friend to do these meetings by herself. So they leave 13-year-old Lauren by herself in L.A. to go meet with an agent to go meet casting directors. And when she gets there, he tries to kiss her in the elevator. She pushes back and is like, I'm 13 years old. He pretends it didn't happen. She calls her mom hysterically crying. Her mom calls the agency and the agency is like, oh, we've already let him go. And she's like, my mom believes herself, but it wasn't her fault. How could they have known that men in L.A. would have been awful? And I'm like, can I actually say I think 100% it is your mom's fault. You should never let a 13-year-old girl by herself meet up with adult men to get her into modeling. Are you out of your fucking mind? I don't care how naive you are. That's common sense. That's stupid. And I do feel really bad for her that that happened. She acts like she just brushed it off and was like, that was fucked up. And it's like, no, that was traumatizing. And you're allowed to be traumatized. This is also when she changes her name to Lauren Kent, Lauren with a Y, because they're like, Lauren Birmingham looked like shit on a comp card. So we had to figure something out. And her dad's name is Kent. So she's like, I still wanted my dad's name. So we went with his first name instead of his last name. Later, when she moves back to L.A. and tries to get back into acting, Maddie has a manager and brings Lauren to go meet her manager. And her manager is like, no. <laughs> and Lauren takes this as a huge rejection. And her mom's just like, well, he told you to go home and work on your craft. That's advice. You're 16. You could quit now or work on your craft, as he suggested. This isn't the end of the story. So she starts taking more acting classes. And she's suddenly like, huh, maybe I should practice to get good. It had never dawned on her before. Not once. She then shares the story about a time she went to meet a psychic who told her essentially that she was going to marry Randall Emmett. She's like, you're going to have three kids, one of them biologically, two are going to be either stepchildren or adopted children. You're going to marry an older man. And she was like, yeah, right. At the time, that wasn't my type at all. There was no way in hell I was going to marry an NFL player and have six biological children. And now she's like, it turns out the psychic was right. And it's like, well, not so fast, Lauren. Lala. Uh, not so fast, Lala. But also, of course, when you're like 15 years old, you're like, me marry an old guy? I don't want to. 
Ugh, then she says a bunch of boring stories about guys she did in high school. I'm sorry, but personally, I don't care about guys who did in high school. She did a guy named Johnny. He was Samoan. She lost her virginity to him. She cried and felt bad about it and then immediately felt better. Yeah. They watched Ratatouille and, and cuddled during a party. And suddenly she was like, actually, he is a great guy. And then he left her for community college and she couldn't believe it. She thought they were going to get married and she was heartbroken. This chapter, I actually am appreciative that she included. In the chapter where she talks about becoming sexually active, losing her virginity, and then watching Ratatouille, she says that she and her friends were never afraid of Planned Parenthood. They called it P-squared, and they'd be like, let's stop by P-squared after school to get some condoms. And they loved it. And I think that that is great that there is someone out here being like, you don't have to whisper Planned Parenthood. You don't have to be like, I'm, I'm going after school. I like that about this book. So in this next chapter, she tells the story of when she was with Carter and she became pregnant. She says this isn't something she's talked about very often, but she went to her mom immediately and she asked her mom, if you were me, what would you do? And her mom says, if I were you, I would not have this baby. And she is very clear to say, my mom did not influence me to have an abortion. If I had gone against what my mom said, she wouldn't have been upset with me, but it really meant a lot to me that that was what she said because that's what I felt. And it was very helpful for me to hear it from her. And she's like, I didn't want to raise this baby. Also, I didn't think it was a good time for Carter, who had done so much to get his life on track. He had come from really difficult circumstances and he was going to be in the NFL draft. Neither of them are ready to have a baby. They didn't want that baby. And then this is the chapter where you really are like, oh, and you were not dating Carter. <laughs> okay, so she decides she's going to have an abortion. In Utah, you have to attend a pregnancy class before you're allowed to qualify for an abortion. I will say, I think she's a little bit Utah brainwashed because she's like, totally, that makes a lot of sense that you should have to go and look at a picture of the baby. I'm appreciative that they did that. And I'm like, no, that is mind warfare. They were fucking with you. And luckily you were steadfast in what you wanted. But a lot of people that would have swayed them away from what they actually wanted. It's not helping you come to the right decision for yourself. It's guilting you. So she pees on a stick, tells her mom she's pregnant. And her mom's like, well, let's go find out for sure. They go to Planned Parenthood where she is confirmed pregnant. So you have to take this class and then you have to wait 72 hours and then you can have the abortion. So she decides she's not going to tell Carter until after she does the class. The way things work in her mind, that felt like the best way to do it. So she has the class. Then she calls Carter. He doesn't answer. She finds out that her grandma had died. So she's eating dinner and waiting to hear from Carter. And he will not answer the phone. He won't talk to her. I don't think he had picked up the phone since she found out she was pregnant. Like, I think she would have told him right away. She doesn't want to tell him over text. And he will not call her back. So he texts her in response to her phone calls and says, how's your day? And she says, my day was okay. My grandma died. He does not call her. He does not really respond. I guess he texts a little bit, but she's like, well, now I've already told him one bad thing. I don't want to double down and do two bad things. I can't get him on the phone anyway. So she holds it in and she's like, I'll tell him after the abortion. I think she was even maybe going to tell him the morning of and she couldn't get a hold of him all morning. He never calls her. Not once. So a few days later, she finally gets the abortion and it happens to be the same day as her grandma's funeral. And he still will not pick up and hear from her. He won't call her. He won't answer her phone calls. And he's barely texting her. And this is just, you know, something to be said about the fucking American healthcare system and how much it hates women. She underwent her abortion with no sedation, no painkillers. It is really heartbreaking to read that she had to go through that. I wasn't expecting it to be so painful, like the most excruciating cramps I'd ever experienced in my life. Friends who had had abortions before me told me they'd been sedated and didn't feel anything. But I'd had no sedation or anesthesia and was fully aware of what was happening. Tears streamed down my face from the pain. My grandma's celebration of life was taking place that evening. I didn't think there was any way I was going to make it, not after what I'd just been through, but I took a nap and I woke up feeling like a different person. I felt okay, like I was back to normal. And then she has this weird thing about how she didn't like that she felt fine. She felt like she should be punished more for what she had just done. That's the brainwashing. 
I'll never judge anyone for having an abortion. I also understand why people might be against it. Either way, all women should have that choice. And that's true. She tells her friend and her friends all joke about it. And they're like, I can't believe I was out and about and you were having a bobo. That's what their little nickname for an abortion was. And she said, once I had one, I became less inclined to call it that because it's no joke. Whether you choose to have your baby, your body kicks into mother mode and you become a different human being. And afterwards, because of the hormones, you can be emotionally affected. And now back to Carter. I'd been blowing up his phone all day with no luck, but at that moment, my phone finally buzzed. Carter's timing, as always, was impeccable. Hey, how are you? I texted Carter back. Everything's great. I'm at my grandma's wake. And by the way, I had an abortion this morning. Just thought you should know. He answered, shut the fuck up. Are you okay? You know something? He still didn't call. And you know something else? I still didn't break up with him. I don't know that there was an up to break. (laughs) There was nothing to break up. And then she says for the next year, every time she saw him, they would get into a fight about it and he would be so apologetic. But she's like, it didn't matter how bad he felt after the fact. I needed him there that day and he wasn't there that day and nothing will ever change that. What he gave me was never enough because deep down he didn't care the way I needed him to when I needed him to. Looking back now, I blame it all on age. I truly don't think Carter was a shitty guy. I think he was a young guy. There's a difference. He just didn't know how to handle what we were going through as a couple and neither did I. We were just making it up as we went along and before long, we settled back into our old routine. I will say, I don't think Carter is an evil person. I do think he was a young person, but you were not a couple. I think the way he treated you was not kind, and it's okay to be hurt by it. So now we meet Randall, the truest love of her life in a life where you haven't actually fallen in love yet. She meets him because he comes to dinner at Sir, and she's talking to his assistant, and his assistant is like, do you have a manager? And she goes, yeah, check my Instagram bio. So they check her Instagram bio, they call her in for a meeting, and she says, I guess I did great because I got a callback. And they didn't just cast her as the character she auditioned for, they cast her as the lead. They actually think she's amazing. And as we'll talk about on the Patreon, he does not cast real movies. So it was called Sorority Row. It was like a campy horror film where a bunch of sorority sisters get murdered. Should we watch it for the Patreon this week? I guess. I'm down. Can we eat ice cream? Yeah. They meet at Mr. Chow. She really wanted to impress him. They just clicked. Right away, they just clicked. They always had a good time. And every time they talked, it was like they were alone in the room. Let me tell you something. With that neck of his, you're never alone in the room. There's always a third character. (laughs) And it's his weird goiter. We start bumping gums. That's what she calls chatting. That's disgusting. She can't even say had sex, but she can say bumping gums. He just like hypes her up in the most obvious producer love bummy way she's talking about growing up near Sundance and how she always wanted to be there as an actress and he's like you will be one day and she's like and I was I was like were you so they have this very professional producer actress relationship going forward where when she needs something she'll just text him I don't think that that's a typical producer actor relationship she's like it was never typical flirty like I think you're so hot it was always really nice things like he would send me tons of juices a ton of green juices to my apartment or if I wanted a table in LA at a restaurant I would text him and he would get me a table in LA and then he would pay for everything. So at one point she texts the assistant to be like, is this how he treats all of the stars of his movies? And this is like, honestly, yeah, that's the way he rolls. And she's like, damn, I thought I was special. And I'm like, I do think he's fucking all of the actresses in his movie. Yeah, you're all special in that way. Whenever there was a new version of the script, Sam, the assistant, would deliver it by hand to my apartment. One day, along with the latest draft, came an army green Chanel boy bag and Christian Louboutin fringe boots. That's crazy. That's crazy. So she gets invited back on Watch What Happens Live to everyone's shock. She stays sober except for one drink. And also they didn't film it at the normal time. They had to pre-film it earlier in the day, presumably like 5 or 6 p.m. so that they could bleep out anything that needed to be bleeped out because she was not trustworthy. She does the show. It goes way better this time. They meet up at Tao. They have a wonderful night. They have their first kiss. She spends the night at his hotel. And she's like, you won't believe it, but I let him hit it the first night. You spent the first half of the book telling us about your hoe phase. 
I thought you were the queen hoe. By your words, not mine. I don't think there's anything wrong with having sex the first night. She also says like it wasn't really the first date because the first date had been several months, several hundred text conversations and a lot of bottled up feelings in the making. When we slept together, every part of me was feeling something because I was ready and because I knew what I wanted. And that was more than just the fun of casual sex. Because we had a foundation of friendship, we had a deeper connection from the start and we were in tune with each other on every level. She said, I think that that's why it was so powerful, unlike anything I'd ever experienced. Even now, I'm so emotionally connected to Rand that sex with him remains the best sex I've ever had. She's also still kind of talking to Carter at this point. He's still trying to get her back. But once she's head over heels for Randall Emmett, she has to talk to Carter and be like, it's over. I've met someone else. Except that's not really what happens. What happens is she's blackout drunk one night, has an entire conversation with Carter about getting back together on the phone in bed next to Rand. And the next morning he's like, are you getting back together with him? And she's like, what? Why? And he's like, that whole conversation you had. And she's like, oh, shit. So she texts him. It's over. And then she's like, listen, is Rand my type? No. But that's why I tell people, don't worry about your type. Worry about the bigger picture, like how they protect your heart and I guess pay for shit. Famously, after their first hookup, he got her a car. She talks about this to Stassi and then everyone called her a gold digging whore. And I don't think that that's a nice thing to say to someone. But when she's like, I don't understand why everyone took this free car so out of context. I'm like, I don't think you hear what you're saying. She's like, I didn't ask for the car. He just offered it to me the first time we had sex. And actually, I told him I already have a nice car. And he said, great, send that car to your mom and I'll send you a new one. And sure enough, by the time I got home that day, he had sent me a new car and shipped the old one to my mom, which I love. I love the idea that he's like, I'll buy you a fancy car. And she's like, I bought myself a fancy car. And he's like, throw it out you need a new fancy car from me. I'm like, well, maybe there's a charity of her choice she would love a donation to. Especially because in this chapter, she gets into like wealth inequality and she's like, sometimes it makes me feel bad that people don't have money. So then she's like, listen, just because he offered me a car doesn't make me a gold digging whore, which is like, God bless, agreed. May we all be with a gift giver. And she says, listen, if I were a gold digger, I'd be the best damn gold digger out there. I'd be with the billionaire, honey. I'd be on an island somewhere yachting every other day. And if I were a whore, which I define as a person who gets paid to have sex, I'd be charging top dollar. I'd be the most expensive whore you've ever met. I love it. If I were a sex worker, which is somebody I define as somebody whose work is sex, (laughs) I'd be better at it than you. And then she gets deep into the income inequality of the world. I remember watching an interview in which Tupac Shakur talked about how it doesn't make sense that some people are billionaires while others are out there homeless and starving. And I agree. If we're talking real life, I want to talk about how it makes zero sense that so many people are living in poverty, struggling to feed their kids, living on food stamps, when there are people out there who are worth hundreds of millions of dollars into the billion dollar range. How is that happening? It's happening because our society pays people who dribble balls more than it pays school teachers, and because our leaders care more about who's bringing in the most cash instead of the education of our children. They pretend to care, but if they really did, they would make damn sure that every child was getting the level of schooling that they need. Anyway, he was sending me a really nice car, even though I already had a really nice car. That just tells me our country is built on greed. Amen, sister. It's insane. So I may make jokes about Gucci slides and private jets, but no, flying commercial doesn't really give me anxiety. I just say that stuff to get a rise out of people on reality television because that's the shit. So the whole point of this was to be like, I've heard of wealth inequality. I'm not doing anything about it. I don't really care, but I I know we all know. So then she gets into the story about how her dad used to have so much money. And then one day in the 2008 Great Recession, they lost everything and their parents really struggled. Her mom was like, you might have to go get a job as a ticket taker at the movie theater. It took him years to get another job. And I don't think he ever really found another career career again. No, he didn't. But the mom had her separate bank account and her income. Lala was working as a fit model in Salt Lake City. Her brother had a job. They were all contributing to the family as best they could. Her mom's mom had passed away and left her mom a pretty good chunk of money. And so they lived off of that. 
She's like, we were scraping together money to get by. Also, my mom had this inheritance. Hey, I have to say more credit to her mom because if it had been Prince Harry, he would have said, sure, we're broke. Sure, there's a lot of money that I could access, but that's not what that's about. That's not what this is for. After the recession, my father never really got back to being his old self, but there were moments every once in a while when he was in his element and having a good time and the sparkle would return. I remember wanting to be a sponge in those moments because they were becoming so few and far between. I wanted to bottle those moments up and remember them and make them last forever. They do have a very loving family. They all love each other so much. She says she knew that her dad was really down and out about not being able to provide for the family. So she would leave letters on his nightstand just being like, I'm so grateful for everything you provided for my entire life. You're the best dad. And he would come kiss her forehead and she'd pretend to be asleep. That is cute. Back to present day. After mine and Randall's first night together in New York, we were gone for three months. It was like some wild, perfect honeymoon. We flew to Miami, to the Bahamas, back to New York for work, and then to Utah to meet my family and then back to Miami. They were keeping it a secret off the show because Randall was still married and there were children in the mix. And so in order to keep it a top tier secret, she gets his initials tattooed on her. So she's like, I never broke up their marriage. He was single when we were together. I don't think that that's true. I think it has now come out that they worked together and he was not getting separated. And she's like, I had no idea because we were never home and I never was allowed to go to his house. But it made sense that we never went to his house because he was married at that house. Yeah, but she was like, well, we were always traveling. And also, like, I wasn't allowed to meet his kids. It's crazy. She's like, it really made sense to me why we couldn't go to his house for a year and a half, even though clearly he doesn't have sole custody of those kids. So they're keeping their relationship a secret because his divorce isn't finalized. And by not finalized, he hadn't told his wife yet. With Randall, I never had that pit in my stomach, that female intuition sending me alarm bells. The second that happens, I'll know that Randall and I shouldn't be together. Okay, he was literally married when you met him. I guess the alarm bells never would have gone off because she didn't find out he was cheating until it was like breaking news. Until there was a literal alarm bell on the television that said, breaking news. And she's like, that sounds just like my intuition. I hope it never does. He's my best friend. I go to the office with him every day. He always wants me to come to boys' night. Of course he wants you to come to boys' night. It's when he's alone with a girl's night that he doesn't want you hit. And I have to shove him out the door so he can go have fun with his friends. Even then, he's calling and texting to check in. He's devoted, as am I. Neither of us put up with shit from anyone, and he knows I have a lot of self-respect. No amount of money in this world will ever keep me with someone I can't trust. I will say, the minute she found out she was out. But I do think, how much did she have to ignore in order to stay? So then Katie from the show finds out that she's dating Randall because he brings her to a party that Katie happens to be at. Katie tells everybody. The producers find out. She creates this whole lie about who she's dating. She says she's dating an athlete who lives in Long Beach who's very shy and doesn't want to be on camera, so she'll never introduce him on the show. But everyone is like, that is bullshit. And she spends the entire season just lying and says, here's the problem. I love to act, but I've never been very good at lying. And now I was under a lot of pressure to maintain this facade. So she shows up to her preseason for Vanderpump Rules where they try to figure out what the plot line is going to be about. And she says the way it works is they interview each cast member secretly and they're like, well, what's going on in your life? And then what have you heard about the other people? And of course, Katie Maloney is like, well, I've heard that Lala has a boyfriend who gave her a Range Rover and is married. And then they sit Lala down. They're like, are you dating anyone? And she's just like, just this rando from Long Beach. And they're like, well, what does the tattoo on your arm stand for? And she's like, oh, those initials, that's for my grandparents. Robert and Elise. And they're like, yeah, we know it stands for Robert. I mean, that's not how initials work. You wouldn't do Robert dot Elise dot. <laughs> this is when she starts bullying Katie about her weight. She starts fat shaming Katie on television. There are a couple instances. And she says this is the one thing she regrets from the show. But she says it's because Katie blew up her relationship. This doesn't feel eye for an eye to me. This feels quite mean. It feels like Katie was stirring the pot and trying to make good television because you guys were on a reality TV show together and you were being a huge bitch. She also does one of my personal body positivity pet peeves. She goes, 
to this day, when people ask me what my biggest regret is, it's body shaming Katie. Number one, I think the female body is beautiful, all of them. But on the real, I love a full-figured woman. Send me Ashley Graham naked on a silver platter and I would be the happiest girl ever to just stare and admire. Oh, you think that supermodel is hot? Brava, Lala. May we all bow down to your progressivity. I think a lot of other people would recoil at the sentiment saying, hey, do you want to date this literal supermodel? But it's so brave that you're out here saying, hey, this woman who has been on the cover of Sports Illustrated magazine is hot to me. (laughs) It's just wrong. It's wrong to be mean to somebody about their physicality. You don't have to say, I don't even mean it. Like, I actually thought she was so beautiful. Who fucking cares what you think about how hot anybody is? I'm tired of it. She also said that she was a no sex having Teletubby, which is to me funny just because her and Tom did have the world's worst relationship. And Katie in the show had this long term boyfriend, if you don't know, named Tom Schwartz. They finally got married. They recently got divorced and they never had sex. And Katie would be so mean to Tom about it. She'd be like, your dick doesn't even work. And she was so fucking mean to her fiance on television that I'm like, I don't know, man, if you're putting it out there, that's fair game to other people. The no sex heaven is fair game. I think most of all, Lala feels bad about it because she hates the feeling of being hated and people were really mad at her about that. Things were out to get her that season. She was kind of fighting it alone, duking it out solo because obviously Rand couldn't step in and help because the whole point was that she was lying to cover for him. So in the middle of the season, she's supposed to go up to Napa Valley for Ariana's birthday. And instead of going, she just dips and she moves back to Utah. She drives to Utah for one full month and nobody knows where she is. I forgot that this happened. Yeah, she goes to Utah. She's afraid to face anybody. She's been lying. She's started fights with everybody. They all hate her. She breaks up with Randall because she's like, you fucking did this to me because of you. I'm being called a homewrecking whore while you get to hide. I have to go out and fucking deal with this. Not you. I want nothing to do with you. Which honestly is fair because he was the married one who did lie to her. Whether or not she should have figured it out on her own. He was lying. So she goes back to Utah. She quits the show. They convince her to come back for the reunion. And she reluctantly agrees to come back for the reunion. It ends up actually going very well. She is obviously fighting with everyone at first, and then she just starts screaming at them for not listening to her. Katie is like, you really hurt my feelings. And Lala is like, you also hurt my feelings. And they all have this reconciliation, and they apologize. And she says, Katie apologized sincerely, and that moment changed the whole game. Here's something about me. I may be vicious, but if you look at me in the eye and tell me you're sorry, I'm putty in your hands. And this rings true based on everything we've read and her bells of intuition. So she's all of a sudden getting along with everybody after this moment. And she's like, I guess we're all best friends. And so then they're like, okay, next season, are you back in? And she's like, of course, we're good. This is also where she has that moment where she says, do you know what? They're not enemies. They're human beings who, like me, have been thrown into the reality TV pressure cooker. I give her a lot of credit for acknowledging that. And then she has this real feminist moment of being like, all the men in our TV show act like shit and I'm tired of letting them get away with it. I'm tired of fighting each other. This is about the Faith Stowers thing. For those of you who don't know, one of the cast members had sex with Jax who had a girlfriend and everyone turned on Faith instead of turning on Jax. And she's like, I'm tired of the men getting away with everything. And Jax cheats constantly. It's a storyline every other episode that Jax may or may not be cheating. He's cheating right now, literally. I don't know what time of day you're listening to this episode, but he's cheating. So then she's like, when women go out and pursue their dreams, men get so nervous, but I'm so lucky because I go out and work and Randall loves that about me he doesn't expect me to cook or clean for him but if I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom he loves that about me he supports me no matter what he'd be there for me no matter what I'm like blah 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 blah. he is cheating on you right now and then she gets into the ate the pasta it's not about the fucking pasta scene at this point she was supposed to bring up that James had allegedly hooked up with his male friend and had kind of this gay affair and she did on Raquel she didn't want to bring it up so instead she said to James 
the producers want me to talk about how I ate all of Raquel's pasta and she got mad and he like lost it. It's not about the pasta. It was really about the gay hookup he had had. Not cocaine as it would turn out. And then of course he came after Randall and they stopped being friends. I don't Nobody cares. So we're back with another section that honestly is heartbreaking. This is the part where her father passes away. Her dad, as we said, had had health problems since she was eight years old. Her dad is, I think, 63 years old, and he has a massive stroke while he's driving a car. He crashes. There are complications, but they're able to stabilize him, and he seems overall like he's doing okay. He ends up coming to L.A. for a big birthday party that they had planned for him in March, and then in April, he passes away after he'd been complaining about pains, and they just weren't sure what to do. The doctor had told them to go home, that it was no big deal, and he passed away on April 21st. Again, I want to say this is another example of when she's in the hospital after her dad's stroke, one of the nurses came up and was a fan and asked for photos and she was like, fine. But then she kept coming into the room, snapping photos of me sitting by my dad's hospital bed. My mom talked to one of the senior nursing staff and asked them to stop. Most of the time, I love interacting with anyone who connects to me in a positive way. But there really is a time and a place to ask for a selfie in the hospital while my dad is sick is definitely not it. The fact that every celebrity has had an experience where people are coming up to them at the hospital being like, can I get an autograph is insane to me. Not to hate on nurses, but it is pretty removed from your job. You do have to remember that this is some of the worst moments in people's lives. I think that there is a really complicated situation around what celebrities owe, because especially a reality star, you thrive off of being in the spotlight. That's how she exists. But hospitals and with children, you've got to not. (laughs) She does not handle her father's passing well. She's already been drinking a lot and having problems with alcohol, and this exacerbates it enormously. She's grieving. No one knows how to grieve properly. It's so difficult. Everyone feels differently. And she handles it by getting blackout drunk every single day. Yeah, when it first happens, she's with her mom and her mom are drinking to cope with the pain. They go back to LA. They drink some more there. But then her mom goes home and resumes grieving in a healthier, less drunk way. Lala just starts doubling down. And she's like, I would walk to the grocery store, get champagne, fall asleep drinking, wake up, drink before I brushed my teeth. She would claim that she was sober on TV, but really every morning before filming, she would fill up coffee cups with alcohol. She was drunk all the time and she was acting belligerent. In the aftermath of her dad's death, Randall stepped in and was like, we're not going to lay in bed wallowing. We got to stay busy and like kept them doing activities. I don't know that that was the right thing to do. She says she had a full on mental breakdown at a Utah jazz game because he made them go to a basketball game the day after he passed because he was like, we got to do stuff that keeps you busy. And she was like, it was so great that he was ushering us through the grief. It doesn't sound like that's actually what you needed, though. If you broke down and started screaming at people at a basketball game, it sounds like you shouldn't have been there. So she has this famous fight with Billy Lee where she goes in and screams at everybody. I guess this is like all boring because it's just rehashing reality TV stuff. And so either you've already seen it or why would you care? If you care enough, you'd go watch it. And it's like, surprise, she was very drunk the whole time. When you look at that TV show, you go, why would anybody act like that? It's because she was so drunk. So she remains drunk. The season is a disaster. She's grieving. People are saying horrible things about her online. Everyone's saying she's using her dad's death as an excuse, which is just a truly terrible thing to say. But also, she should have been looking at the comments. That's not a smart thing to do if you are having a hard time with comments. So the season wraps that summer. Her dad died, of course, April 21st. So the following summer. And she is acting insane when she gets drunk. She tells four or five stories of being out with Rand, getting mad at him, taking all of his shit and throwing it off a 17th floor balcony, running it all under the faucet, taking a heel, breaking through hurricane-proof glass doors, 
taking his phone, throwing it on the ground, going to the refrigerator, throwing the food all over the kitchen time and time again. And she's like, Rand is such a saint, though. He'd always put up with it. And the next morning we would laugh it off and we'd feel fine. And she's like, of course, I was actually depressed, but he was really patient with me. And I'm like, I don't know that that's patient. You're acting violent and insane. They're in a hotel and the police get called on them. More than once, I think. So her rock bottom is when they all go to Disney World as a family. So it's Rand, his kids, her mom, her brother. A lot of family members are there. Rand's parents. She's drunk the entire time. She is blackout drunk the entire time they're at Disney World. And then on the flight home, she just gets hammered and lets his kids draw all over her. So she's just like covered in marker. Worse than that, she had some old clips of her singing as voice notes. And she was making everyone on the plane listen to her sing and yelling at them if they interrupted. That's one of the cruelest acts I've ever heard. After this incident in front of his parents, her parents, everybody's horrified. And apparently he went home and wrote a letter and was like, I have to break up with you. You're just too far gone. And the next morning she wakes up and has a moment and realizes, oh, I'm an alcoholic. I have to get help. So she reaches out to a therapist who specializes in alcoholism. That therapist is like, okay, I can see you on Thursday. Call me every day until then. I'm going to hook you up with a sober sponsor. She starts going to AA meetings and she feels very seen and accepted. She has her 30 days sober. Everybody cheers for her. And she's like, everyone immediately noticed the difference in me. They said I looked glowing for the first time. Then we start to wrap it up. And I will say I'm happy that she's sober and I'm happy that she's working the steps or whatever is helpful to her. It stresses me out that she still really glorifies a lot of her drunk behavior. She thinks it's so great that when she's drunk, she's able to come up with quick insults and really ruin someone's life with her words. But she says now that she's sober, she's dealing with a lot more of her life. She's a great relationship. She's so happy. Everything's perfect. She's pregnant. It's all working out. Only people who are very close to me know Lauren, and they know just how soft she really is. I could have told you. I could have said there's something wrong here. My family and my best friends, who I've known since I were babies, they've seen me with my walls down after Lala kicks off her glass-shattering Louboutins and relaxes into someone a little less extra. She says, you know, sometimes I watch the show and I think, God, who is that girl? I wish I could be as confident as that person is. It's her. She is Lala. Another time she looks and goes, oh my God, how could I act so bad? I can't act that way anymore. Who is that? And it's her. It's Lala. And so she's working on finding an in-between, somebody who stands up for herself and acts like Lala in that way, but also is soft and vulnerable and honest. And that's Lauren. Like I said four times in this episode, I think it's so smart when you're on reality TV to have a facade and a front. But when that person is ruining other people's lives, this is the issue with reality TV now. People are like, I was doing this for the cameras, but the cameras are a version of reality. And even though it's not real, even though everything's heightened, if you say something horrendous to someone on camera, you are still saying something horrendous to that person. It's not scripted. It's not an act. You're causing real life rifts and real life problems. It's not different people. She is so stressful to me. The other thing is she's acting that way without the cameras too. Yes. She's like, this was who I was on TV and also other days. And when I was sad or mad or happy or just bored. She also says, I looked back, when did I become an alcoholic or when did the alcohol really start affecting my life? Because she didn't drink a lot in high school. Obviously, during college age, she wasn't drinking a ton. And she's like, I realized it was Vanderpump Rules. I started allowing myself to drink even more to quell my anxieties about being on camera. And then, of course, it got worse and worse and spun out of control. And she says, but I don't blame the show. Had it not been for reality TV, I would have never had a reason to go that deep with myself and face up to my truths that I have a tendency to turn to alcohol when things get bad, that when I feel insecure, I turn into a raging bitch, that even when I'm not drunk, it's easy to push my buttons. If I hadn't gone through Vanderpump boot camp and seen myself laid bare, I might never have had the opportunity to rise above it and work towards becoming a better person. 
And she says, I'm not the only person in the world struggling with addiction. I'm not the only person in the world mourning the loss of her dad. I'm not the only person in the world who takes things out on her partner when she's drunk. But I'm one of the few people in the world who will share it all on TV. Even if I'm judged for that, it's worth it to me because there might be one person out there who sees me, recognizes themselves in me, and finds something to hold on to, laugh at, and give them hope. I kind of liked that. But then she goes into a little aside about the haters and how people are so mean to her online. And this is one of the craziest things I've ever heard. She says, when I get a really shitty message, she'll go and see if they're following her. And if they're following her, she'll just let it lie. But if they're not following her and they're just DMing her hate for no reason, she'll block them because she's like, well, I don't want to lose followers just because they're haters. You can just work on that in your next round of therapy, Lala. I don't, okay, can I say, I feel very conflicted because on the one hand, I'm like, that is crazy that you're that addicted to the number and that you're that desperate for followers that you'll let somebody abuse you just to have a plus one. But she also is like, I know that if they follow me, they only hate me because of the last episode. And when they love you because of the last episode, like that isn't real. They don't know you. So either direction, if they hate or love you, they're watching and engaging and that's all that matters. It's equally nonsense. Whereas if they're not even watching, then what do I care? That's true. And I am like, is that the most enlightened thing I've ever heard? (laughs) Or is that the most pathetic thing I've ever heard? And I honestly don't know. I don't know either. I'll have to get back to you guys. (laughs) I'll work on that in my next round of therapy. She thanks Andy Cohen. She thanks everybody. She thanks the guy who met her at the first Watch What Happens Live. And then she says, to my unborn baby, I hope one day you read this book and get to know me better. And I think, oh boy, I wonder. I just wonder. Oh boy, I wonder. I wonder how that baby is going to feel about the book. Any thoughts, Ashley? I think this book was honest, but a level of honesty where she is still not quite in touch with her honest self. I think it was annoying because at the end of the day, she is someone who's annoying. And overall, it was a quick one. I can't argue with you there. It was one of the quicker (laughs) reads of my life. It was one of the more forgettable reads of my life. I didn't hate it because I can't even remember it. I wonder if there'll be a new Vanderpump Rules by the time this episode comes out so that we can do a Patreon about it. I hope there is. I hope there is. I love you guys so much. And Ashley, who do we think the most? Thank you to Emily the Farm Girl. I cannot wait to have fresh cheese from your farm. Thank you, Mackenzie Foreman 98 You are the foremost best reviewer. Thank you to Furry554. I hope you're getting your rocks off in a fluffy suit. Thank you to J21094. You are my favorite letter of the alphabet. Thank you to MJHGTFHN. If I could throw a bunch of letters to the wall, I hope that that's how they would land. Thanks to Yo Lover 117 YOLO to you too. Thank you to Rosie Mac underscore new, my favorite computer, never a PC. Thank you. Thank you to LBW629, my favorite little beautiful writer of reviews and thank you to cheese and true crime you are the only mystery that i would ever want to solve i love you guys see you next week